0: Uh, good morning church good morning it is wonderful to be together on the lord's day uh, to worship him together is a great privilege for us as his people uh, as we've been redeemed from death to life we have now an opportunity to glean from him to come together on each lord's day i want you to turn with me to the book of acts we are continuing in the book of acts this morning uh, this morning we're concluding Stephen's story um, in chapter at the end of chapter seven. Uh, but before we even get into the text, let me just tell the children uh, who are with us in the service this morning that the, the word that you are going to be counting and that you're going to be thinking around is Stephen. The word is Stephen that you and you have the sheets. Uh, what a wonderful thing to have uh, children with us. Worshipping, thinking through the sermon with us on a Lord's Day. And on that note, uh, let me just encourage you, dear church, uh, to commit the Lord's Day morning to the Lord. Uh, the Lord has given us the Lord's Day as a time for us to come and worship Him, to hear His Word, and also to rest, to rest from our labors, to uh, rest from our works, and to, be, to, to rest ourselves and rest in Him and trust Him that He has our livelihoods. At Heritage, we do not have an evening service, but we do have a Bible class at 8.30 in the morning, and then Sunday service. So let me encourage you to come at 8.30, commit the entire morning to the Lord and to being with His people. We have Bible class at 8.30 here for everyone, and then we also have prayer this coming week. We've just finished studying the doctrine of hell in the New Testament. Uh, for four weeks and now this coming week we're going to be uh, praying together as a church. So let me just encourage you once again uh, to commit the morning to the Lord and then the afternoon uh, to rest and recreation. Well we are in the book of Acts. We want to conclude this story of Stephen. Uh, we have been with Stephen now for four weeks I think when we were first introduced to him in chapter 6. And we've seen him in different situations. Last week we heard his uh, powerful, incisive sermon, not really a sermon, his testimony and speech against the Israelites and the Israelites' leaders, and all of that, and we unpacked all, what all of that means. And this morning now we're here, at, when we're hearing what happened after that sermon that we heard last week, that, that speech, rather, that we heard last week. And this is how they react to Stephen's indictment, Stephen's accusations on them, Stephen's judgment, really pronouncing uh, the judgment of God on them. Let's hear what they do from chapter 7, verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of... He called out Lord Jesus receive my spirit and falling to his knees he cried out with a loud voice Lord do not hold this sin against them and when he had said this he fell asleep and Saul approved of his execution and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is God's word. The question I have for you this morning as we begin is really the first point of the sermon. And here's the question I have for you. How do you take rebuke? How do you take being told that you are not in line with what God says? How do you take it when people, someone comes to you, Bible in hand, verses in hand, and saying, Do you realize that you are walking in a manner or you are doing things in a manner that is contrary to what God says? The council here is enraged at Stephen's testimony against them. Remember what we heard. Stephen has accused them and their fathers of being spiritual Gentiles, of being stiff-necked of having a, a history of rebelling against Moses. He has called them that they, that they this, this hatred that they have for Gentiles, this dislike of those whom they consider unclean, Stephen has just called them the ones who are unclean. Stephen has just laid all of that on top of their own heads. And they simply cannot take it. We're told here in verse 54 that they were enraged and they gnashed their teeth. They ground their teeth at Him. This is a phrase that expresses deep anger and frustration. These men are being told that they are the enemies of God that they seek to persecute. And they can't handle it. They they consider themselves to be Abraham's children. They pride themselves... Of being the ones who uphold the law. But this particular second opinion, this see, they've diagnosed themselves, we're children of Abraham. But here's a second opinion. Here's a someone with God's word coming with a second opinion of themselves and what they are and what their fathers truly are, and it completely rubs them the wrong way. Of all the responses available to them at that moment, they choose rage. They choose anger. You remember what the people in Jerusalem, all the way back in chapter 2, when Peter said something similar to them, you killed the Messiah, you killed Him, you are guilty of killing the Holy One. Do you remember the response in chapter 2? What shall we do? What can can be done? Okay, we we hear you. We hear our guilt. What can be done? What shall we do? And Peter very freely, very graciously offered to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, if you repent and be baptized, you will have the Holy Spirit. Not only now will you be enemies of God like you have been acting as enemies of God. Now you will live with God. Now God is going to come and make his place of abode in you. Those guys chose to to make terms of peace. Those guys responded to being told that they're guilty by asking how how can it be made right. These guys respond with a gnashing of teeth. They respond with rage. How do you react, dear friend in front of me this morning, when someone offers an opinion of you that is contrary to your own opinion of you? How do you react? You see, consider that a rebuke like the one Stephen has just offered, stings. Yeah? A rebuke is not nice. Who here is always looking for a rebuke? If you say you're always looking for a rebuke, you're lying. It stings. Imagine being told that you and your people are not what you think you are. Everyone here this morning has an opinion of themselves and of their history and who they are that is ingrained in their identity. We all have an opinion of ourselves. You consider yourself something. You consider your people something. You, you have an idea that you, that you hold close to, that you really hold dear to your heart. Perhaps as it comes to you personally, you have an opinion of yourself. You think that you are reasonable. I'd be surprised if I did a survey here and some people said, No, I'm actually unreasonable. No, people, we generally think that we are reasonable people. You consider yourself thoughtful, do you not? You consider that you think and you, you care for the, for the ways of others and what, what others are going through. You consider yourself kind. You have an opinion of yourself that is deeply ingrained. That is why when someone rebukes you, perhaps what comes out is defensiveness. Because you say, no, 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 I'm not that way. And many of you consider yourselves to be upholding God's word more than the average person. Many of you here this morning consider that you keep God's word in general. That in general, as it as it relates to your life, you are walking in the way that God has. It's something that you believe. Now, how would you react? When someone comes to you and tells you an opinion that is contrary to what you think? What if someone comes to you and looks at your life and says, contrary to being reasonable, contrary to being thoughtful and generous, you're actually miserly and you're childish in your reactions? How would you react when someone details your temper tantrums and shows you that much more than being thoughtful you're actually quite immature the reality is that hearing a contrary opinion of myself from someone else is not nice it's not nice and just as a side yes there is a way to rebuke people yeah there is a way to rebuke people proverbs says A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So yes, generally, if someone rebukes you with a harsh word, you're not likely, in general, according to Proverbs, to respond with happiness. And of course, 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, the pastor, that when it comes to older men in the church, he should not rebuke them, but rather he should encourage them as he would a father. So, me as a pastor, I do a lot of rebuking, but when it comes to older men, I am forbidden to do so. Instead, I mean, I am to exhort, I am to encourage them toward godliness when they see their lives going astray. So, yes, indeed, there is propriety in the one who gives the rebuke, but that aside is rage is being enraged the best response the best reaction to being rebuked certainly not i think you can agree with me if you know the scriptures that it is certainly not the best response the reality is that here's the reality you and i are the worst judge of ourselves you are the worst judge of yourself i am the worst judge of myself no one is more lenient more partial more imbalanced in my in in, in their judgment of you than you you are guilty of partiality when it comes to yourself you always see you always minimize your sins in your head and you always maximize the wonderful things you do in your mind, you have a constructed vision of who you are, and it is usually not exactly accurate. When viewed this way, as a matter of justice, we can see how the assessments of others become important. Are you with me? When you realize the fact that you are impartial regarding yourself, you are imbalanced regarding yourself, you can then now see that the judgment and the assessment of others are extremely important yeah because they see things in ways that you don't they come at you without part the partiality that you have towards yourself the how how other Christians with Bible in hand assess my life is perhaps more important than my own assessment it is vitally important and perhaps more important than my even my own And if I find myself, therefore, defending myself all the time, I need to ask why. If I find myself always providing an explanation, always defending, always there's someone comes and says something, someone comes and says, and I'm just always trying to, no, 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 you don't understand, you don't understand. Well, maybe it is me who doesn't understand. Maybe it is me who is not seeing the problem that others can see. Let me tell you what the answer boils down to what all of this boils down to You do not like being told that the vision that you have for yourself in your mind is not true You don't like that that's an established fact and I'm not talking about the things that you tell other people Okay I'm not talking about the things that you that you tell other people I'm talking about what you tell yourself in your head You see you can tell other people all day long that you are proud you're saying to other people, "I struggle with pride. I struggle with pride." But then in your heart, you say to yourself, "Because I've just come, just because-, because I've confessed my pride, I am actually, actually humble. <laughs> because I go around expressing how prideful I am, look at me, I'm actually humble." Mm? You see, you've told yourself that you're humble, but you're telling others that you're proud. And you might find actually that what you told others in that situation is actually more true than what you're telling yourself in your heart. This, I, I'm dealing with the image that you have of yourself. The, 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 the heart, would you, the, 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 the one that is just so dear to you. This is who I am. I'm a, I'm a person who walks a straight way. See, because that's what they were. They believed themselves zealous for God. They believed themselves zealous for Moses. They believed themselves the children of Abraham. And then Stephen comes and says, You guys have a history from the very beginning of killing the Messiahs sent to you and you finally killed the real Messiah. you are stiff-necked spiritual Gentiles this, this, this reality I I, I, need to, I want to illustrate this because it's, it's really it's really an important thing in Christian discipleship this reality that I, that we are not what we think we are in our heads, hit me like a ton of bricks a number of years ago when I, when I first moved up to Johannesburg. You see, up until my first year as a graduate, I had lived my entire life, about 21 years, in KZN. I was always surrounded by my people, the Zulus. I grew up in Zululand. I consider myself a Zulu of the Zulus. So you can imagine my surprise when I came to Johannesburg and almost every Tswana, Peri, and Sotho person I spoke to told me that Zulus are arrogant. <laughs> Even people at this church, no, 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 scratch that, especially people at this church. You guys know yourselves, I won't name names. I proceeded, right at the beginning when I first arrived here among these Tswanas and Peris, I proceeded to defend the dignity of my people for about a year and some change. And it wasn't until I had spent so much time here, interacting with people here and people from different tribes here and, and feeling a kindness and willingness to learn other languages and people stretching themselves that I saw something different. That I actually experienced something different from what I had been exposed to. And the big moment for me was when I went back to Natal for a visit. And I was in a taxi, and the taxi driver did a a horrible horrible maneuver on the road, nearly hitting a car. And the driver hooted. And unlike the taxi drivers here who just drive off, that taxi driver opened his door, looked menacingly at the driver of the car that he just sinned against, and stared him down. And I was like, oh my goodness, my people are arrogant. (laughs) It was a shocking moment. And then add to that around the same time, I saw videos of myself from way back when I was, when I was in KZN. I, I was, you, know, you have to understand, I was a president of a Christian organization. I was evangelizing, doing all these things. But I saw a video of myself, a three minute video of myself being absolutely proud and arrogant towards the people that I was in the organization with. And I proceeded to delete it on Facebook. Because it shocked me the amount of hubris and pride and arrogance that I displayed in that video. It literally, I think it made my skin crawl. You see, and I realized at that moment that I'm not what I thought I was. See, I lived among my people. I would never really experienced other people who learn other people's languages. Other people who have different views and are more kind and don't make big deals on certain things. And I realized that I was an arrogant man and I needed help. You see, the the opinions the opinions of others, dear saints, the opinions of others who see the Scripture and see our actions is vitally important. It is vitally important. Bible in hand, assessing my life, is something that I need to invite. Far more than reacting with rage, let us be thoughtful. We must love rebukes. We must in one sense offer ourselves to caring rebukes. Proverbs 9 verse 8 says, Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Proverbs 1 verse 8, A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. You give one rebuke, to a person of understanding, a person of wisdom, and it's going to go deeper in them than a hundred blows into a fool. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be wary of his discipline, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. And here's the warning, following from what we saw last week. Proverbs 29 verse 1, here's the warning. He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, does not bend, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. You're going to keep resisting rebukes resisting rebukes, resisting rebukes and there will be a time when you completely break beyond help beyond healing, no more healing for you, you have resisted it so much so that nothing can be done take that as a warning dear saints receive rebukes in a godly way, receive them in in a, respond to them in a godly way, look for them, prize them I'm not saying any any kind of rebuke from any kind of... I'm saying specifically rebukes from people with Bible in hand. Of course there are rebukes out there as well when we're at work or wherever and we should take those seriously as well. But especially I want you to reserve your highest praise, your highest appreciation for those coming from people with Bible in hand. Well that's that's what happened here. That's how they respond. They respond with rage to his rebuke. So then what happens? Look at verse 55. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Well, here, God in His grace gives Stephen a vision of Christ in heaven. There are questions as to why the Lord gave Stephen this vision just before he was about to be killed. And there are also questions more than that, that what what was the purpose that Stephen saw this and such that Luke can even record it for us. Now I I want to say a number of things to help us think through this. Notice at this point, That while they are angry at him, they have not yet convicted him of anything that requires death. You with me? At this point, they are just angry at his rebuke. But they have not gotten a bona fide legal reason by which they can kill him. A legal reason by which they can punish him. There is one striking detail here about... Sorry. Oh, I just jumped ahead. Because of that in mind, it is this vision that they kill him for. It is not what came before. What came before made them mad, made them angry. But it is actually this vision that he sees that gets him killed. And there is something specifically regarding Stephen's vision that is not that doesn't that doesn't it seems it doesn't fit, it doesn't actually doesn't look like it belongs. Let me ask you this question. In the, the New Testament, whenever we hear of the Son of Man being at the right hand of God, what is he usually doing? What is he usually doing at the right hand of God? Seated, right? He's usually seated at the right hand of God, in, in, in at the right hand of God. In Matthew chapter 26. In Mark chapter 14, in Luke 22, Christ says they will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Even Revelation 14, the other place where we see this vision of Christ at the right hand of God, He is also seated. In Revelation 14, He says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a sign of man having a golden crown on his hand and a sharp sickle in his hand. But here, what does Stephen see Christ doing? Standing. He's seeing Christ standing at the right right hand of God. And there's there's been quite a lot of discussion over the past 2,000 years as to why Stephen sees Christ doing something different than all the other visions of Christ at the right hand of God. But here's what I'm convinced is happening here. Let me offer to you what I'm convinced is happening in this text. Do you remember what the Lord Jesus said would happen if the disciples acknowledged Him before men? Do you remember? What would ha- Jesus said something would happen when you acknowledge me before men, before rulers and councils. What did Jesus say He would do? He said He would also acknowledge you before His Father and the holy angels in heaven. While Stephen is acknowledging Christ before these men, Christ is standing acknowledging Stephen before his father. He is vindicating him before his father. We have already seen last week that his face shone like an angel, which was noting to us that God has already given his verdict regarding Stephen. While Stephen here is in the Jewish trial and being found guilty, His advocate is standing before the Father, vindicating him. His advocate is standing before the Father, looking directly at him, speaking to the Father on his behalf. This is why, when they stone him in verse 59, Stephen calls out to the Lord Jesus that he has just seen, Receive my spirit. The vision that he saw was not an impersonal vision just a vision to be shared for others it is a vision that concerns stephen it is a vision regarding stephen stephen they are judging you they are pronouncing you guilty but i i am standing and before my father we are here awaiting your arrival this is what awaits every believer Who dies in Christ having finished the race this is what awaits every single one of you if you die in Christ having finished your race while there may be persecution while there may be troubles and trials God's verdict of your life is in not just because of what Jesus did back then but also because of what Jesus is doing right now on your behalf interceding for you, standing before you, standing before the the, the Ancient of Days, mentioning you by name before His Father. The priesthoods, while they did their jobs of interceding for the people, they came and did their jobs and they had to clean themselves. But here now, the Messiah, the final priest, the superior priest, does no less for His own people. While they may condemn you here on earth because of your following of Christ, Christ vindicates you. While they may say all manner of things against you here on earth, because you are speaking on behalf of Christ, you are speaking for Christ, you are, exp- you are pushing Christ's banner in their faces, Christ vindicates you before the Father. This is a wonderful reality, saints. One that needs to warm our hearts one that needs to come to our hearts and sit there. That we do not have a weak, lame, lazy high priest. But rather we have an excellent high priest who stands and makes intercession on our behalf. Whether or not we have sinned or no, he makes intercession on our behalf. If we have sinned and fallen short of the of the holy standard of God, he stands and says, I have made... My final work on, this, on behalf of this person. My work is complete regarding him. He cannot be cast out. I have done a work, a powerful work on my, daughter's, on, on my daughter's behalf. If now she falls, if now she has done things that are wayward, you cannot cast her out. I am her advocate. He takes up our case brings it before the father and don't think of the father as some kind of judge who is who has no skin in the game no no this is the father who in who thought of this entire thing this is the same father who predestined us to life who thought of us chose us name by name one by one each by his own knowing each person and all their faults and all their weaknesses he chose them and then provided for them an advocate before him. In, in the court of heaven, we are well taken care of. In the court of heaven, there is an advocate and a judge who is for us. Let that sit in your mind as you think of your, your week. Let that sit in your heart as you fall this coming week. See, this is why the scripture, here's something that's very important, extremely important. The scripture, the the New Testament writers do not spend any time making Christians feel guilty. The New Testament writers are not in the business of making Christians feel guilty. The New Testament writers are in the business of saying, Christ has done a wonderful work for you. Now live this way in response. The New Testament writers don't come and say, "When when was the last time you did what you were supposed to do? When was the last time you're walking in the right way you're supposed to be going? Why are you so useless? Why are you so sinful? Again you've fallen. What is wrong with you? The New Testament writers are not in that business. You will not find that kind of language anywhere in the New Testament. You will not find any, any kind of shouting at you from the New Testament writers. Instead, you will find this. Your Savior has done the wonderful work. Now live in accordance with that your savior has saved you yes you're going to stumble and fall but what does john say if you confess your sin before him he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you your savior has done all the work He has done all the heavy lifting you are now a child of the father live that way it is no longer this hey perform hey why aren't you performing rather it is this you've been saved you need to walk in a manner that 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 fits your calling You've been, you've been drawn in. Why are you living this way? Stop it. You have not been saved towards this. Your body is a temple. You can't unite it with such a thing. You have been saved. That is the motivation. And so use that. Think on that. He is not standing up there accusing you. He is standing up there interceding for you. But this this reality that there is a advocate, a lawyer, an attorney, a superior, wonderful lawyer and attorney in front of the holy judge of all existence has a converse reality. And that converse reality is this. It is a horrible thing to face death without that advocate, without you being on that advocate's advocate book, that analogy, the lawyers will probably rebuke me later on, I'm sorry without being in that advocate's book. You see, there is no other advocate. It's not like you can choose your own lawyer here. At that court, there's only one acceptable, qualified advocate. Only one. The man Jesus Christ from Nazareth. Everybody else who thinks that they're an advocate is not not an advocate. Everybody else who fancies themselves an advocate is going to himself be judged why would you face death without having an advocate in the court where your whole life is being weighed? We're not just talking about a a speeding ticket here. We're not just talking about something that you can get out of after a few years. We're talking about your entire life being weighed on the balances, on the scales of heaven. And if you go into that, if you go into that, that case... That court case, that hearing, without that advocate, what will await you is judgment. No one else's name is going to be heard. No one else will be able to petition for any kind of hearing. Unless your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, you will be judged. Let me encourage you now come to the one advocate available, come to the only show in town. I'm to the only useful business. You don't just go to find a lawyer on Facebook marketplace, do you? You don't buy, you don't just usually just go and, and buy whatever it is and import. You don't buy your house from Facebook marketplace, do you? Just go find, oh let me go find this from wherever. You don't go and, and buy a car from a, a place that seems like they have a machine that rolls back the mileage. No, you you, want to go to a reputable place. You want to go to a place that you can trust, a place that has an actual warranty, a place that actually has a guarantee, a place that is certified, that this place, if you buy this product here, it is certified, it is the right product, it is not a, um, it's the real Makoi, it's not a Fong Kong. That's what you're doing if you go to other advocates. That's what you're doing if you're trusting in other people. That's what you're doing if you're not trusting in anyone. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who gives this kind of life. He's the only one who gives this kind of acceptable service in the court of heaven. Well, Stephen sees this vision of Christ and he exclaims, Behold, I see Christ standing at the right hand of the Father. And it is that proclamation, it is that confession that drives their minds mad and moves him to death. Look at verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus... Receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen is now killed, not for his rebuke, but for his, his confession that he sees the Son of Man standing before the Father. Do you remember what God Jesus killed? Do you remember what exactly was the thing that led to Jesus now being saying, what What more do we need to hear? It was the very same confession. You see, they had been trying beforehand. In Mark chapter 14, you can read. They had been trying beforehand, this tactic and that tactic, this tactic. And he, he's rebutting them, he's saying them, and they're angry, they want to kill him, but they don't have a charge that will stick. It is only when they ask Him, Are you the Messiah? Tell us. And He says, I am. And behold, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of Majesty on high. And then they, as soon as He said that, they tore open their clothes. And they said, what more do we need to hear? In the same way, they take Him and rush upon Him, take Him out of the city. In the same way, He cries out, Jesus did he cried out to his father and said, receive my spirit in the same way, just before he dies, what what did he say forgive them for they know not what they are doing, do you see Stephen the procession, the progression being exactly like Jesus Christ Stephen's ministry mirrored Jesus' ministry at many points, we've seen this He was full of the Holy Spirit, like Christ was. He was unanswerable. They couldn't answer the words and the wisdom that was coming out of his mouth, just like they could in Christ. And then he he rebukes them. He says harsh things towards the leaders of Israel, just like Christ did. And they are angry at him, just like they were angry at Christ. They kill him and stone him for, for, for proclaiming that Christ is at the right hand of the Father. Just like they killed Christ for that same reason. And now, even, even now, Stephen, as he dies, he is just like Christ. He is asking for his spirit to be received. And he is asking that they may be forgiven. Why? You thought about that? If you just if you're read looking at all these connections, why? Why Stephen's life, his ministry, and his his public ministry, the power in his ministry, and then his trial and death, even to some of the minute details, why does it mirror Christ so directly, so closely? Is it is 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 Luke perhaps depicting Stephen for us as some other man we should worship? Is is Luke wanting us here to consider Stephen uh, in the category of Christ? The answer is no. It is rather this. Stephen's ministry, ministry, trial and death mirrors that of Christ so strongly so as to show us that Stephen follows in Christ's footsteps just like Christ said would happen. He is following His footsteps in this, exactly how Christ said it would happen. Christ said that what they did to me, they will do to you. And what does that drive home for us? What does that now say to us? Well, this is what it, this is what it brings to our minds more than anything, is that we, His people, are united with Him in His life and in His death we his people are united with him not only just in life but in his sufferings we have this wonderful eschatological unity with the with the son of man that goes deep we as his people go up with him and go down with him where he stands we stand because he's standing where He falls, we fall because He fell. We go up and we go down with Him. We, we, we suffer the way He did. We are persecuted because of His name. Everything, we, we, there's this, this inseparability between us and Him. We don't only have Him when He is blessing us. We also have Him when He is being cursed. Because he is no longer here physically, those who will be cursed in his place is us. There is a a unity, there is an inseparability between the church and Christ. We are growing up into him, the head, the scripture says. It is in his image that we are being made. In John chapter 17, the Lord Jesus Christ asked for an amazing thing. And an absolutely jaw-dropping thing that that Jesus asked for in John 17. He says this, I do not ask for these only, my disciples, the twelve, but also for those who will believe in me in their word. Now listen to this. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Listen. That they may also be in us. That they may also be in us. He is asking these things so that they that they that we, those of us who believe because of the testimony of the apostles, that we may be in the father and in the son, that we might know something of the unity of the Father and the Son, that we might be attached to Him with an un- unremovable glue. This is a wonderful. Unity that we have with Christ. And you must think on this, Christian. You must dwell on this reality. The New Testament writers, particularly the Apostle Paul, says a lot about this unity that we have in Christ. And then he brings implications from that. And perhaps there is no better place that he does that than in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. He says this in Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, you see... You are in Him. You've been raised in Him already. If then you have been raised with Christ and the implication is, yes, you have been if you are in Him, then therefore seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Why, Paul? Paul, why must I have my mind be on things that are above? What's the, per- what's the reason would I do that? I live here on earth, don't I? Paul gives you a, a reason. Here's the reason in verse 3. Colossians chapter 3 verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, where's your life? Where's your life? This is not your life. Your life is up there with Him where He is. You go up where He is. You sit where He sits. You're everywhere where He is. You're following Him like like one of those puppies. You know those puppies who shake in their bodies and they're always following their masters? You are following Him around. You're attached to Him on His leg. Sorry, Michael. I know you have one of those puppies. I'm sorry. I I didn't mean to tease you. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then also you will appear with Him in glory. Have this reality, that you are to seek what is above, because that's where you are. That's where your life is. When He is revealed, then you'll truly see yourself. You don't actually know yourself. You you haven't actually seen what you actually look like. It's It's still to be revealed what you truly look like. Why is it that the Bible calls you a saint? When you did these things that you did this past week, how can the Bible call you a beloved of God when you had when you you have those thoughts that you had this past week? How can it say so? Just wait and see. Because of the work that was done by the Lord Jesus Christ on your behalf, you are now something entirely different. You have been united with him, and he is your life. Well, now as we end and very briefly, what is the effect Of Stephen's death widespread controlled organized targeted persecution and displacement of Christians look at verse 1 of chapter 8 and Saul approved of his execution and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the Apostles Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Great persecution comes out against the church. The political and religious climate, sorry, rather, political and religious system that governs Jerusalem is now unsafe for Christians to remain in. And we are told here that many, because of the system, the machinations that are happening, they scatter abroad. Particularly, they run to other areas of Judea and into a new frontier, into Samaria. Interestingly, we are told that the apostles didn't scatter, the church scattered, but the leaders stayed. There is simply no indication in the text, or really anything that I can find. As to why that is. Uh, The main possibility is that they wanted to stay and guard their post, but it is not clear at all why they stayed while the rest of the church was being persecuted. But more to the point, more that is uh, to the point is that we're introduced to this young man, Saul. We were introduced to him a few verses earlier. And this young man, Saul, is now the face of persecution against Christians. In fact, at this point, there is no difference. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> there is no <clears throat> There is no difference between Saul and any of the enemies of God. He is inflicting if you if you if you just read this verse these verses and read what's happening here Saul is inflicting more damage to the church than the Sanhedrin did than the Sadducees did, than anybody else so far. No one, up until this, no one has done the things that Saul has done, which is going from house to house, dragging people because they're Christians into prison. The ESV says here that he is ravaging the church. Uh, But I I like the, the NAS and the NIV. I find them more accurate. He is attempting to destroy the church. That's actually what he's doing. He's not just trying to silence the church like what was happening in chapter 4. You remember, in chapter 4, they wanted to silence them. Saul wants to destroy them. He wants them all gone. He wants them finished. He wants to kill whoever he can kill of them and remove them such that they die. Saul, later on, in Galatians chapter 13 confesses, that he violently persecuted the church and he wanted to destroy it. He didn't just want to silence it. Saul, This man Saul is full of zeal. No doubt this Saul was a part of the Hellenistic group that was defeated by Stephen since we know that Saul was of the Cilician synagogue which was located in Tarsus. Um, He was zealous and he was defeated by Stephen and he is overcome with with zeal for the ways of the Jews and he is overcome with hatred for Christians and he wants to get rid of them. It is not often in the Bible we are told of a character who specifically wants to destroy the church. That is a massive statement to say. For the Holy Spirit to see someone as wanting to destroy the church. The one that Jesus died for, the church that was the one whom the ends of the ages have come—that is not a small deal. Do you know who is credited as wanting to destroy the church normally in the scriptures? I'm sure you can say it. It's the devil. That's his passion, his hatred for God's church, and his hatred for God's church leads him. His leads Saul. To be used by Satan in his zeal by attempting to bring lasting damage to the church. As we end our text here, we will end our text here at this particular moment. But let me just say this to you. This is why you never leave a story unfinished. Yeah? It's why you never leave a story unfinished. This is why you need to keep reading. And keep reading, especially in the scriptures. Read from beginning until end. There are many threads that Luke is setting up here that he is yet to tie with this narrative. What will happen to the church that's been scattered? Is this Saul character going to achieve his goal of destroying the church or not? We will consider those things the next time we are in Acts. But let me leave you with this. In the plan that God has for His people, there will be low moments. See, right now we're leaving this text at a a low moment in the church. Before they were thriving. You remember this? There were thousands of them. They were growing day by day. It was growing. It was wonderful. There was no space. The people couldn't even get attention of the apostles. They were hoping for a shadow. It was wonderful. There were priests being saved. It was a wonderful time. And now we're leaving. We're finishing our sermon on the lowest point of the church so far. Where they're scattered abroad. They're ravaged. Some of the, the, a leader among them has been killed. And their ladies are weeping. They're, I mean, it says that he's dragging men and women, dragging them to prison. Families, he's, he's, they're being subjected to serious indignity. But that is why you should never leave the story unfinished. See, where it appears that the powers of darkness have the upper hand... But here's how the story ends. And I'm going to spoil it for you. I'm sorry. Here's how the story ends. Christ wins. Christ wins. And His church, though ravaged by sin and ravaged by the powers of darkness, that church of His stands. Let's leave it on that note. That even though there might be low moments in our lives, and even in the history of our church here, there might be low moments, but do not leave the story unfinished. Come back later and see the end. Don't leave before the credits come. Amen. Let's pray. Glorious, majestic, powerful Savior. Interceder for your people. Your, your offices, Lord Jesus, astound us. You are our Redeemer. And you are our Priest. You are our king. You are the prophet that brings the word to us. Your offices are wonderful to us. Your care for your people, even though there are ups and downs, even though there are low moments and high moments, you are the rock that remains the same. And I pray, Lord, for us as a church this morning, as we leave this morning, as we think this week, may we think on things that last, May our minds meditate on that which lasts, that you are the perfect advocate, and that we are inseparably, eternally united with you. And may we long, as we long and wait for that day, O Lord Jesus, where you come in your glory to sap all darkness from the land, we say, along with the Spirit, come. Come, Lord Jesus, and end our suffering. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.